welcome to The Ground Jewels. I'm your host, James Dixon, and I am so excited about today's guest and today's grant. Uh, today's guest is the fantastic author, Nige Tassel. He's written some of my absolute favourite sports books. His book on the 1989 Tour de France, Three Weeks, Eight Seconds, is close to being seminal. It is really, really top draw stuff. There's a book called The Bottom Corner, which is sort of exploration of non-league. He's done one about a season in the championship. He's done one about TV sport. He's done loads. He's a fantastic sports writer, someone whose writing I really admire. And we got him on this week to talk about Wembley Stadium. And why Wembley Stadium? Well, because Nigel has written a fantastic new book called Field of Dreams, which tells the story of Wembley, the 100 years of Wembley in 100 matches. It's a great book. He kindly sent me a copy. But before we get into the conversation I had with Nigel, it's obviously a really apt weekend to be talking about Wembley. Last weekend, we had the fantastic playoff finals. All anyone seems to be talking about is Luton being promoted to the Premier League. Kenilworth Road, obviously on my list as something to discuss as a, on the ground jewels. Fingers crossed we've got a good Luton guest in the pipeline. I think the other playoff finals were dramatic. Sheffield Wednesday getting back to the championship with a 123rd minute winner. Windass again at Wembley. You know, history repeating itself down the years. And the League Two playoff final, you know, plenty of drama in that one as well. And of course, this weekend is the FA Cup final. The first all-Manchester FA Cup final. United versus City. City going for the treble. Uh, United desperately trying to stop them. It's going to be fascinating. And a lot of the conversation that I had with Nigel focused on the FA Cup and the role that Wembley played in the FA Cup's development and that centrepiece of the football season that the FA Cup used to be. It was a fantastic chat about the old Wembley. And instead of telling you about it, I think we should just get right to it. So today we're joined by a man described as the F. Scott Fitzgerald of football writing. <laughs> I think it's a great compliment. We're joined by Nigel Tassel, uh, the author of a fantastic new book, Field of Dreams, 100 Years of Wembley in 100 Matches. Nigel, welcome to The Grand Jewels. Hello, James. Lovely to be here. Thank you. I, I, don't, I still don't know what that quote means. It sounds great, the F. Fitzgerald of football writing. I don't quite know what it means. And Ian McMillan, the poet, came up with it. I, I don't... I, I'm, I'm too shy to ask, but I just, we just have that on the back of the book. It could be, it, it could be an insult. It could be like absolutely cutting i mean there could be i mean i'm sure you know given like some of the characters in his books maybe escott fitzgerald had huge character flaws himself and maybe that's what ian's trying to come across is this damning we with faint praise yeah. oh, it's damning yeah, you with fantastic praise <laughs> oh, fantastic praise yeah. yeah 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 i'm happy to be damned in that in that circumstance yeah, I'm trying to think of something uh, of, of a similar parallel, but all of the examples that come to my head are, are going to be libelous. So I'm going to I'm going to start I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> so I guess people are from the title of that book not going to be surprised that we're going to talk about Wembley Stadium. Um, and are you've taken on this challenge to cover off the centenary of of Wembley Stadium as a as a football ground and by putting together this fantastic book, but. What I was surprised about, and I thought, you know, arrogantly, I thought I knew a lot about football and stadiums. Wembley was never designed to be a permanent stadium. No. I mean, to be honest, I, there's a lot I, I, I kind of learnt in, in the research, and that was one. It was, it's a temporary structure, the original Wembley. It was uh, constructed for the, the um, Empire Exhibition of sort of 1924, 1925, and due for the wrecking ball, sort of after the exhibition, like all, all the other buildings came down, 
but then some some bright spark um, who was working in one of the concession stands and then was employed kind of helping to rem- to uh, demolish the other buildings. And he had a background in scrap metal. And I think he could, he understood the value of, of the stadium. And he was the one who then bought it, bought it off the owners, turned it, put Greyhound racing in there, put Speedway, put all manner of sports. And of course, made it the home for, of English football. But, but yes, you know, it's, it, it seems a fantastic engineering product, project, a massive one to go to for something that's just going to, was planned to just stand for sort of two or three years. It's insane when you think about the, the context of the time where a few years after the First World War, the Great War, to end all wars for at least 20 years, and (laughs) the economy's in terrible shape. We're only a couple of years from a general strike. And we've got this idea, we'll spend a load of money building a stadium for a pop-up, like a pop-up stadium, and then we're going to knock it down again. Yes, that's what it is, yeah. I know, it it, it seems bonkers, you know, and it's 27,000 tonnes of concrete. This is why it's, you know, you have the Twin Towers and, and they're beautiful, but the rest of it is, you know, it is a concrete bowl, effectively. It, it, its significance and its worth and its beauty was was what happened there, sort of in subsequent decades. But, you know, who who knew it could stand as long as it could? You know, I, I live near Bristol, where the Clifton Suspension Bridge, Brunel died before the Clifton Suspension Bridge opened. He had no idea whether it would just collapse with the first horse and cart that went over it. You know, today, whatever, 40,000 cars go over it still, you know, however many hundred years on, 200 years on or 150 years on. So, you know, I, I love the idea of the fact that it did still stand right up until the, the, the next millennium, you know, and I think the original architects would be amazed if they could kind of, you know, travel back in time and see that that happened. Absolutely. And it really, it must have captured the, the imagination of people because almost immediately you get one of the most iconic moments in Wembley history with the White Horse final, the FA Cup final of 1923. What's the estimate? About a quarter of a million people went to the FA Cup final? Yeah, we're talking, yeah, there's a range between 200 and 300,000, you know, there's, there's absolutely no way. If you think football hooliganism began in the 1960s, you know, see, see, see the tens of thousands of men climbing over fences, barging their way through turnstiles there. But I think that was, that was absolutely to Wembley's advantage that that was the first one. There was that utter chaos. If it was just an undersubscribed final that we went off very politely and without any any kind of you know pompous circumstance, it wouldn't have made the headlines. People wouldn't necessarily have been aware of Wembley Stadium. It'd just be this stadium where the FA Cup final was being played for two or three seasons, and it already had a range of different venues. You know, it used to be played at Crystal Palace and all over in the Oval. It's almost that that really kind of struck its its made its imprint on the on the public imagination straight away. Going, oh, what is this place? You know, it made the front pages rather than the back pages. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. That final gave Wembley a bit of notoriety and a bit a bit of clout and maybe the reason why it, it got to sustain it itself over, over time. I want to talk about your experience with, with Wembley because I think you've taken on a fantastic challenge as a writer and I'm a huge fan of you as a writer as you know people uh, who haven't read uh, The Bottom Corner which is a sort of exploration of non-league you have a wonderful cycling book on the 89 Tour de France the 89 yeah the the, the eight seconds was the the, you know, the, the tightest finish ever in you know so it's called three weeks eight seconds yeah you've tackled a, an, another meaty subject here with Wembley but your 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 personal experience of Wembley comes in 1992 it does yeah I mean my granddad was at the first at that first final the White Horse final and that's who I write about I wrote about this 13 year old lad who had a fan, fabulous name my granddad had Ernie Thunder 
Amazing name. Sounds, sounds like, you know, some sort of rock guitarist would kind of pick that. But then I didn't go until I was, I would have been 23. I knew Wembley throughout from the late 70s, early 80s. I didn't, I didn't have a ground that I went to religiously at all. Um, I grew up in the sticks, not near any, any, any club. So I didn't really have an affiliation. I wasn't going there religiously, you know, every home game. And so I kind of learnt my football remotely. And Wembley was not necessarily my favourite ground, but the, the most familiar one. From, from cup finals, from home internationals, from times when I could sneak downstairs and watch sport night, sports night through the crack in the door, being really quiet because it was past my bedtime. But, you know, and at nighttime, Wembley took on this different aura. It looked like a completely different, it had this really luminous quality when you'd have nighttime international matches. Um, so it wasn't until the end, 1992, it was my final year at university. I went to Essex University in Colchester. And that season, I did go to a lot of home games down at Layer Road where... Colchester, I say romped to the conference title. We beat Wickham on goal difference, but that was enough. Um, probably made it even more infuriating for arch rivals Wickham that it was, you know, just a matter of a few goals. Uh, and then went to Wembley to do the double where against Witten Albion. Remember it really well. I, I remember we, t- we took a coach from the from Colchester, and I'd, I'd heard about you know TV. You'd see all these pictures of Wembley Way, and you think it's grand entrance, and it's not at all. You know, you, it's this horrible entrance to the old Wembley going round. Lots of little industrial estates with little light industries, a lot of tyre places and you know, and car repair shops and lots of little mini roundabouts. And I was just thinking then, you know, if you were playing the European Cup for you're Real Madrid and you've turned up to play at Wembley and you're just driving around this something looks so ordinary, so down at heel. Really so that was that was that was my first impression. Um the fences were still up then. So but fortunately we weren't behind the goals inside the pitch, so we weren't sort of two hundred yards away from Colchester United's two early goals. Uh, scored by Mike Masters and Nicky Smith, still remember them today. Mike Masters, the first American to score at Wembley, he made history that day. Then, coach, a bit of jeopardy. Um, Jason Cook gets sent off, down to 10 men. Whitten Albion get a goal back, and then Steve McGavin seals it up the other end. Macy dribble right in front of me, stuck it in the far corner, and uh, a 3 1 win, and the double was down. Mike Masters is one of those great quiz questions, like football quiz questions, because people think it's John Harkes and Sheffield Wednesday as the as the first American to score. Uh, there's another great football quiz question. Do you remember how many steps there were at the old Wembley to go and f- the, the Colchester captain would have walked up? Well, I'm saying 39. Yes. I'm saying 39, James. Oh, no, good. good. I, was, I was worried you were going to contradict <laughs> me then. And my, my whole authority on this whole book was, was in flames. Oh, good. No, no, yeah, 39. But, but that, that was sort of like drummed into children. You know, you know, after a cup final, there was 39 steps to walk up. And I don't, I don't even know what it is now. It's, it's, um, it's, 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 yeah, it's, much, it's, it's in the 80s or 90s. Or I, I do mention it, actually, but I can't remember what it is. But I, I remember, I remember going, I remember in my little village library and seeing John Buchan's 39 steps thinking it was a book about Wembley as opposed to, you know, this, this, this amazing story of daring do of a, someone on the run, you know, and being chased, hunted down by the authorities. But uh, yeah, disappointed that, that it wasn't about Wembley, actually. I'm, I'm glad you sort of touched on the, the underwhelming nature of Wembley because, and it comes from that temporary construct. And I guess you would never plan a football stadium of that size in that area, would you? Um, and I think I think the new Wembley has done a little bit more with the elevated ramp, and and you know they've put a few statues, and you've got you've got a bit more sort of coordinated planning and and, and thought into the plazas and and things. But the old Wembley really was just a bowl in a giant car park in a weird bit of North London. You know, I, I remember you know stepping onto the concourse then there, you know, so going off to get some chips or whatever. And I don't know what I was expecting. Was I expecting the Albert Hall to it's all be grand inside? You know, 
really so of course it wasn't it's a temporary structure that never really got updated you know it wasn't you know they didn't get some you know some stonemasons in to do some elegant carvings or anything like that it was functional and supposed to be functional for those few years the fact it was functional for quick bit of math 77 years until until uh, you know the gates closed for the last time is quite incredible in fact so all to the power of concrete really clearly uh, a, a fantastic building material to make things last why did arsenal bother with marble at highbury when they could have just slapped up concrete it's that's 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 the question that we'll never that we'll never know so how do you go about you've set yourself this challenge to tell the story of wembley in a hundred matches you've got mm-hmm. probably thousands of matches to choose from how do you go about making the mm-hmm. selections? Yeah, $6 million question. First off, you, you make it into your head that, right, this is a history of Wembley. This is not the history. I can't tell the history of Wembley of 100 years in 100,000 words, you know, not doing the place justice at all. And since the book's come out, everyone's going, obviously, you've included this playoff final, and obviously, you've included that. Well, no, not obviously. Um, so what you have to do, you've got to have a fair smattering right across the... Uh, right across the decades. So my heritage is from 1976 final onwards, but I had to be really cautious that I wasn't just including lots of things I was familiar with and that meant something to me. So delving back into the archives, into the newspaper archives a lot, but also certain matches, you know, you've got to have in there, obviously 66, Euro 96, Matthews final, et cetera, 1923 final, but also trying to come at it in a fresh, with a fresh perspective from a fresh angle. What I don't want is people going, well, I already knew that for that one I wanted them at the end of each chapter to be go oh well I never knew that. that and as a writer that's the best thing especially if you're writing historical stuff that people already have got a good grip on if you can tell them something they didn't already know do that 100 times over in the course of this book then you've done well but also whilst picking the big games I wanted to pick on the small ones you know so the first FA Vars final the pub cup final the first ever one of those schoolboy internationals, the first women matches, the women's six-a-side games and stuff that happened, you know, in the mid-80s. Um, because that is as much a part of it, of Wembley's history as well. You know, it's there for the small people and for, you know, someone who's played in the FA Vars and that was their one time and that's the story they tell in the pub for the rest of their days. That one match is more, far more important than an England player who's won 100 caps who can't remember what his 43rd cap who that was against, can't remember those matches. Whereas that FA Vars, that story will... They'll remember every detail, but it will just be a story that's honed and polished. It, will, it, it holds more, far more importance comparatively. So those are as much as the part of the story as well. And it's in co- uncovering you know, covering stories that I didn't know as well. You know, it, it is not me just going, well, I know all this stuff and I'm just blurting it out. You know, it's some deep research and trying to find some really, you know, really studying old Pathé news reels and stuff like that. Much later, I should have gone to bed, you know, at 2am, I'm there listening <laughs> listening to, you know, someone in the Mr. Chomley Warner voice, um, you know, describe the events of the 1927 Cup Final or whatever. Yeah, it's just, it's just really immersing myself in the subject and hopefully I've kind of got the balance right. I think you have. I mean, one of my favourite things when I did uh, something similar for the first Champions League in, in my book was talking to the players of, of the really small teams that used to get into the European Cup in, in those days. So I, I remember talking to a lot of the Glentoran lads from Northern Ireland who were drawn against Olympic Marseille in the first <laughs> round. And their story, you know, they it's vivid. They, they have obviously been telling a version of that story, you know, every week for the last for the last 25 plus years in terms of what it was like to play against Rudy Voller and Didier Deschamps or all of that kind of thing and the detail that they remember is sort of fascinating uh, I don't want you to you know we've got a hundred games but can you give us one example of when you had a similar sort of conversation with that for the book that you just came away thinking wow what a great little detail oh oh 
Well, I was quite fascinated. One story was really good. This character called Frank Haffey, um, who people won't necessarily know, but he was the Scotland goalkeeper in 1961 when England put nine past him. You know, it was the last time he ever played in goal for Scotland. And he sounds like an extreme character. If you've watched some of the footage, you're like, come on, my granny could have dived a bit better than that. He wasn't the world's greatest goalkeeper. But a really fascinating moment was that comes off the pitch and obviously Scotland mortified. You know, they put nine of him put against out, put past them. And he's in the bath singing. And they're just like, what the hell are you doing? You know, and he's sort of, oh, yeah, game's over. Now let's have a sing, sing song and let's have a, have a drink. Um, but he was a really, he was, he was a really interesting character. I've read a couple of paragraphs from it. After three more seasons at Celtic and a brief spell with Swindon Town, he and his wife emigrate to Scotland, to Australia's Gold Coast, where he plays domestic football for five years. On retirement, though, his career heads in an unlikely direction, albeit one possibly hinted at in that Wembley dressing room. He becomes a cabaret singer, even recording a couple of singles, The Dear Little Shamrock and Slattery's Mounted Foot. Haffey also finds work as a bit part actor, his most high-profile role, role coming in the cult Second World War drama Spy Force alongside a young Russell Crowe. Plus there's even a turn as a stand-up comic. Old people's homes were the best, he told the Sunday Times. The residents couldn't walk out. Having moved halfway around the world to help escape any ongoing ignominy about that fateful afternoon back in 1961, 40-odd years later, Haffey bumps into his former teammate Dennis Law, who's on holiday on the Gold Coast. The old goalkeeper explains how he's thinking of returning home to Scotland. Don't, advises Law. It's still too soon. <laughs> I just love these stories. I mean, what I try and do is it's trying to humanise a, a lot of the matches. They're not match reports. You know, if I'm just focusing on one person, mm. maybe even the referee or a commentator, or um, I interviewed the ball boy from the 1953 Cup final, um, who's now in his 80s and... At the 1956, sorry, the Burt Troutman Cup final where he breaks his, his neck. And there's, there's eight ball boys, um, not all probably still with us. And so there's a one in eight chance of him being near Troutman. So I spoke to him, a guy called Fred Knotts, now in his 80s. And he said, yeah, I was the closest. Apart from the line of photographers next to the goalpost, I was the closest one to Troutman. I heard the crack, which is just great. You know, when you're interviewing someone, he comes out with the line going, oh, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the pull-out quote. Yeah. So, yeah, so hearing people's stories and finding out, you know, what they did next or, or how they reacted to certain matches was, was, was always a fascinating one. And, yeah, Frank Haffey seems to be a, an absolute character. I love, I love that Frank Haffey. I've just, I've just given him a, a quick look up and uh, played two games for Scotland. In one, he's a hero. He saves a penalty from Bobby Charlton. And in his other game, right. he lets in nine goals. It's, uh, it's the, um, in many ways, that's, that's, that's a bit of a parable for Wembley, isn't it? Because it's not like a home ground. You're going there with a 50% chance of disappointment of having the worst day of your season. Exactly, exactly, yeah. You know, it's not like this is going to be a great day or an okay day. It's going to be a really bad day or a really great day, you know. And that is it, you know. You, you, you will all be optimistic and go, yeah, this is, we're going to have that, that lap of honour. We're going to soak it all up. Just as much, you're going to be dragging your heels, getting on the coach, being thoroughly miserable for the next few days. It's so, it, it's so tense. And yeah, it, it's one of those where I don't know. I mean, maybe the bigger, maybe bigger clubs f- feel differently because they go there so often. But I'm a Birmingham City fan. And when we go to Wembley, which is very infrequent because we're sort of clinging, clinging on like plankton at the bottom of the championship <laughs> for the past 10 years. Uh, but when we've, been, uh, when we've gone to Wembley, it's always with, I say with, with the exception of the 2011 League Cup final against Arsenal, it's always with trepidation. 
you, you, you never know what you what, what you're going to get. It's even now, thinking about like the '95 auto windscreens, and I know we we won with a golden goal, but like we were going to get the absolute piss ripped out of us if we lost to Carlisle. <laughs> it's, it's just so you, and you you know when it when you get that relief and you know for us that day it was Paul Tate scoring uh, the first golden goal ever mm-hmm. at Wembley which sadly didn't make the book but never mind <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so almost it's a sense of you you know you can get that sense of relief and it's that yeah. sort of mm-hmm. it's that place and that final place that decides whether you've had a good season or, or not. It is. It, you're right, though. It's 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 fifty percent relief and fifty percent ecstasy. You know, it's relief that you haven't you have avoided, you know, having one of the worst days of your life. You know, it's just, you know, not having been in that position myself. Why not? Obviously, I'm second guessing. But you know, it's got to be. I hear that final whistle. God, yeah, we weren't. We're not them. When you look across the pitch, we're not with the people on their knees with their heads in their hands. We're now going to have a, a really good night. Yeah, the Carlisle lads have got a six-hour coach back. <laughs> <laughs> and we've delayed them by half hour by going into extra time. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. at least we're only a couple of hours up the road. So, yeah. But I think I think one of the, the real fascinating things about the late period of the, the old Webley Stadium, if we can call it like that, is how much it democratised itself by adding in like the Football League playoffs, by adding in things like the trophy final, the Vars final. It suddenly, it wasn't the privilege of the the elite, the FA Cup finalists, the League Cup finalists a bit later and the internationals. It became a stadium for everyone. And I think, I know there's some clubs that never got there. I think Warsaw famously never never played at Wem- the old Wembley and there's a, there's a few others as well. But most clubs got their day there. And that's also really special. Yes, and I, th- I think you know and that's that's what why it becomes a national stadium because it's not it, it it is the elite thing. It's the most famous stadium in the world. You know, Pele calls it the cathedral of football. But then you can have someone from the ninth tier of the English pyramid playing in the Vars final. You know, on that same turf that that Beckham would have played on, that Maradona's played on, that everyone except Pele. I mean, Pele will never actually played there. Um, and I, I and I think that's great. You know, because that's equivalent of an amateur snooker player getting to play on the crucible table, isn't it? Or a tennis player, you know, getting to play on Wimbledon. They don't get that opportunity. But there is that opportunity. If you, you know, obviously you've got to be decent. You're not going to, I'm never going to play on the Wembley Wembley turf. Um, but just that opening up, there is a national thing. It, it, and it, it's, it's, it's a target for, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of football clubs can get there if they have a good enough cup run. You know, it isn't just the top six in the Premier League. Plus, you know, if they're holding a Champions League final, you know, the cream of Europe. Um, the fact is that, yes, you're right. It's a de- democratising thing that, you know, someone who is a, you know, cliche alert, gas fitter by day or whatever, you know, can have that moment in the sun. Absolutely. I love the stories at the end when they were knocking it down and there were all sorts of like charity <laughs> games or like, you know, and I remember... Um, you know who scored the last goal at Wembley being a thing in the press for a while, and then it'd be, it'd be some sort of charity game, and then these and it turned out like the builders who were you know decided to play a game before they actually knocked it down, and some some builder somewhere has the has the uh, the title of scoring the the, yeah, the last actual yeah. goal at Wembley. I think that's nice. Think. If it, if it does come up in a pub quiz though, just answer Diddy Haman and you will. Oh, get points, you know, I'm sure. That's um, <laughs> yeah. Diddy Haman, that's a, that was a dart. I mean, you know, and that's for people who who were perhaps a bit younger. I mean, obviously YouTube is your friend, but that Diddy Haman goal, squirming past David Seaman, Kevin Keegan resigning in a toilet. That's that's the negative. That's the negative side of Wembley. 
it, it was such a sad end to Wembley. This is it. It was such a sad end to that Wembley. Is that, you know, England knocked out. I think it was a really dark, horrible, miserable night. Keegan resigns. And Wembley doesn't get that that send-off that it deserved. You know, there's no kind of game. They should have had some sort of, should have given Wembley a testimonial effect. Yeah. You, know, you know, had some sort of, you know, get the world's best players that summer in to kind of, you know, play a game. Because, you know, people remember Wembley in the sunshine, you know, not on a dirty, horrible October night such as it did. I think it was, it was a sort of last-minute reprieve from what I remember. I believe the last game was supposed to be sort of England-Ukraine, a sort of Euro 2000... Uh, warm up, and then suddenly we drew Germany right. in the in the World Cup qualifiers, and they saw this opportunity to have like an England Germany, ah, right. and that's why that's like pulled forward to the the very first game of the qualifying phase. Okay. Um, right, and it's right, just right. this idea like we've we've just beaten Germany. Well, well, maybe we hadn't at the time, but we beat Germany, a bad Germany at Euro two thousand, and we're feeling confident. We'd had a good. 98 World Cup, we'd qualified easily. Did we qualify easily? We qualified for Euro 2000. I don't think it was easy, actually, thinking about it. We struggled against Sweden. But it wasn't supposed to happen. And then we have this bright idea of playing Germany as the send-off. And then it's a sign. Let, let's replicate 66, yeah. you know, and uh, that would be the final thing. And it... We're not that good against Germany, <laughs> at least at the time. And it's just... When in fact, what we did was replicate pretty much Poland 1973, you know. Yes, yeah, so it, it, didn't, it didn't get that moment in the sun that it kind of deserved, especially is, you know, the wrecking balls didn't move in for a couple of years, so they could have easily extended into that next summer if they thought, well, that's a rubbish way to go out. Let's let's give the old girl a better send-off than that. Yeah, and it also, I mean, coming to, I mean, we're talking just before the FA Cup, it also had an awful FA Cup final send-off. I know you can't control that. You can't you can't redraw the competition, <laughs> but it was uh, it was Chelsea Villa, wasn't it, in 2000? That oh, was God, the, yeah, yeah. That was, yeah. And they got a bad one there. I can't remember the League Cup final. Probably, I think it was Leicester Tranmere actually too. So yeah, it went out with a bit of a whimper, didn't it? Bit a bit of a whimper, but you know, but you know, had lasted as I say for for seventy plus years more than we thought. So you know, you got to get those games in before it crumbles to the ground. But, uh. That's true. So let's talk about FA Cup. It's the thing that gives Wembley its start, as we talked about in 1923. And for a long time, it's the the focus of the entire football calendar. It's the only game that's reliably televised on on an annual basis. And it's appointment viewing. And I know you've got a lot of great FA Cup finals in your book. What are some of your favourites? So the first one I remember is 76, um, Southampton Man United. Um, I grew up relatively close to Southampton. They They would be the closest... Top, actually, no, they weren't even top flight that, but but almost they they, they went at, got promoted the following season, I think. And especially as a primary school, I sat in front of the niece of Bobby Stokes, who who scored the winning goal. So there was there was that connection that was that was an in for me. And from then on, you know, it's so you know you just know it by heart until you get into a certain stage of adulthood. You can just reel off all these FA Cup, all the scorers, you know, everything, and then gets to a point where real life catches up and. And your brain gets a bit doddery, and you can't remember. You know, you can't remember one one day to the next. So, um, seventy eight was good. Ipswich were just everybody's favourite second team, as far as I was concerned. And my brother was a bit of an Arsenal fan, so Ipswich winning that was good. Seventy nine, you know, I can just go year by year because each, I remember each. But seventy nine was fantastic. One I remember, you know, Arsenal being two up against Man United, about five minutes left. Um, and I did want Arsenal to beat Man United that time. Man United get one back, and then there's an equaliser. And I was going, oh, no. And my dad's saying, well, what? This is good. We get another 30 minutes. We get extra time. This is fantastic. And then Liam Brady goes down the other end, slips it to Graham Ricks, who knocks it over. Gary Bailey, a bit of a Frank Haffey in goal there, had to send to the ball, and then that Sunderland scoops it in. 
83 Brighton again I kind of grew up between Brighton and Southampton so Brighton you know that was that was a great story all the way through to you know 1990 I was at university by then um and watching that with a room full of mates watching Ian Wright come off the bench and score twice that was fantastic and we were even though we were we were all sort of 2021 20, by then I remember going out afterwards going over to the patch of grass behind our student house and playing football like we would have done at eight years eight eight and nine re- reenacting that same match you know and and doing that again as as grown men quite embarrassingly but yes the FA Cup is just definitely where it crystallizes certainly for me and I think for most people you know that that whole three o'clock on a Saturday in May second Saturday in May usually sunny day almost exclusively amazingly um and 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 all that you know hours and hours of TV build-up but it became familiar to me the whole ground not because I didn't, you know, I didn't go there till 92, as we've talked about, but just knew it, you know, you, if you look straight down the tunnel, straight ahead, you could see the buses, the buses almost on the pitch. I used to be fascinated by that. And then coming out of the dressing rooms down to the right hand side, down to the east side, under the stand there, you know, it just had, it had a sense of ceremony, a reliable ceremony. You know, it was just, you knew what would happen next and you, but just, just, just huge memories as a, as a kid, you know, th- those are, as you know, I've written a book on TV sport. In my teenage years, just that's all I did was watch TV sport behind darkened curtains. And and that was just the centrepiece. The the year revolved around Christmas or it revolved around the FA Cup final. So a football football mad prepubescent lad, certainly. And I think one of the things that people who maybe are a, a bit younger than us don't don't necessarily realise it it was ubiquitous. You've, you're in a free channel age, and two of two of the channels are competing to who can put the most FA Cup coverage on from nine in the morning. And and I mean, some some. I mean, I've I've gone back and looked at it for another project that I'm doing on Grandstand and seeing what they did versus what World of Sport did. I mean, some of the skits were a little bit ropey. They certainly wouldn't pass the sort of standards of political correctness now. I seem to remember Freddie Starr making a lot of appearances on the on the pitch pre-match, and people people of his ilk. It was less than 30 years after the... It was about 30 years after the end of the Second World War and he's goose-stepping in Nazi regalia. And it's just like, when was that okay? Because there's no... He went and had another... A perfectly long career after that. There's also also a really distasteful from the 84 Cup final, Everton-Watford, of Michael Barrymore doing blackface for John Barnes. Oh, my God. Oh my god! No one commented on it at the time. It was just, um, yeah. You, I'll send you the link. <laughs> it's one of the. Okay. My god, that's gonna be an eye opener. Yeah. No. I mean, maybe I've maybe I've subconsciously filtered filtered those out. But I remember, you know, they'd have a celebrity or a cup final themed question, a special edition of Question of Sport, or something like that. It was just, it was just heaven. And then Grandstand would finish, and then you'd have the news straight after, and the first story would be the cup final. And, and you have another 10, 15 minutes of extra coverage. Then so you're just reliving it over and over. And then match of the day that night would be the cup final. It was, it was really did. The, the football calendar, as you said right earlier, earlier on, totally revolved around this much more than, than the league. The league was just that ongoing thing. Whereas, you know, now we have Premier League being much more important than the league was probably then. And the cup final being the real kind of jewel in the crown. That was the prestigious thing. Going through that list where you were giving a potted history from the 70s to 90s, you, you missed out West Ham winning in 80 as a second division club. You missed out the Ricky Villa goal in 81. You missed out the Merseyside one. You missed out Wimbledon. You missed out Coventry. I mean, every year, for a, there was like a period for about 15 years where every year something amazing happened in the cup final and it was just magic is the cliche but it was magic you know how else can you explain Keith Houchin's knee oh no it's Gary sorry it's Keith Houchin's goal Gary Mabbott's knee 
Des Walker's own goal and the, the Gaza. Kevin Moran being sent off. Smith must score in 83. You know, it is Whiteside's amazing goal in 85 as well when they're down to 10 men. But yes, anyway, I, I might think of this in Rose Tinted Spectacles as I was young and absor- absorb everything. You know, everything was going in and they kind of crystallise in your mind. But I think, I think, I think there was possibly more distance between teams. I think teams probably cancel each other out a lot more. So it's cagey stalemates, unless you're Man City and you can kind of swap people around, you know, beat Watford 6-0 or whatever. And so there was a more chance of an upset that people were stronger favourites, certainly, in certain things. So, you know, Coventry Spurs, you know, Spurs would have been the favourites there. Obviously, Wimbledon, Liverpool. Whereas, even though they're in the same division, you wouldn't countenance Wimbledon remotely having a chance to win because Liverpool, that age, you know, 88 season Liverpool, absolutely phenomenal, one of the best teams ever. But, you know, it's that whole thing. It's, it's down to 90 minutes, cliche alert again, you know, down to 90 minutes. And why shouldn't a team that's in the same division and therefore shouldn't be that far off the pace not be able to, to, to eke out a win, you know? And, and yes, all of, all of those, those 80s ones, I think that is the FA Cup Finals golden age. And maybe it's because I was in my teens at that time and I was a kid for all my kid, possibly. But I'd, like, I'd, I'd go head-to-head with anyone who came up with a decade of better finals than that, definitely. I think, I think you're right. My, the first one I remember is 1990, watching, watching live. And I was spoiled to start with. My first three football games oh, that I God, ever watched yeah. were the, the two semifinals from 1990, which was the Villa Park, uh, Liverpool, Crystal Palace one, the Man United Oldham one, which was, I think, at Main Road, and then the final, which was the three-all final with Ian Wright scoring. I didn't get to watch the replay because it was past my bedtime on a Thursday night. And then the, then the fourth game of football I ever watched was Argentina-Cameroon in the in the uh, 1990 World Cup. So I had a really good start to football. That's not bad. If you if you don't get into football after that lot, then there's, there's no hope for you. So I remember the Liverpool Palace final. I remember coming back. It was possibly the Easter holidays from university. And I remember coming back and rushing back to, to make it and getting in sort of 15 minutes after the game had started. And it was Russia had already scored for Liverpool. And Liverpool had beaten Palace 9-0 that season. So, you know, it was just like, oh, OK, what the hell have I rushed back for? But then then, then an extraordinary game. And you go, OK, well, this the next semi-finals are not going to live up to it. And, uh, you know, we have three all. So we have 13 goals in these two semis. And then a, a final that was of the equal of them as well. Absolutely, yeah. Great days, great days. And I think one of the things there is that those semi-finals weren't at Wembley, and we're talking about Wembley. But then you get the shift that happens the next year because you've got Arsenal and Tottenham drawn against each other in mm-hmm. the semi-final, and Wembley's almost the the natural place to to put that, probably against a lot of resistance. I think, uh, but I think it was something about the scarcity of not having semi-finals at Wembley that then started to get eroded with the old Wembley because you got you got that all Sheffield semi-final but then it also be for, for occasionally they experimented and they were just like well any semi-final can be at Wembley yeah I think I'm right in saying that yeah and it took it took away the the magic at the spec how special getting to Wembley was totally you know you can understand it with Arsenal Spurs you know they're not going to hold it at Barnet or they're not going to hold it at Vicarage Road or something are they you know um, and you can understand it Luton Kenilworth Road but but then they kind of realised, oh, hold on. You know, and one side of me going, okay, well, more people can see it. If you hold it in the country's biggest stadium, then more people can experience it. But on a purely footballing point of view, you know, it's it's not as magical. You know, when that player is telling a story at the time he played at Wembley, oh, it's a semi-final. You know, it wasn't that it was the final, it was the semi-final. 
Yeah, something has eroded then, definitely. You know, I, I, I'm still a great fan. I used to love the concept of neutral venues that you'd have two teams playing at neither of their grounds. So, you know, so Villa Park for Liverpool Palace in 1990. I just, I love the, that kind of surrealness of it, you know, going, oh, these, who's the home team here? Or, you know, and just both of them being out of water, not playing on their home turf. Who's got which end? Which set of fans are in the Holt end? Which are in the it's, Trinity yeah, Road? And it's yeah, just... Yeah. Uh... No, it's, it's, you know, I, I, I love, used to love that. I remember the Man City... Ipswich final in 81, that would be as well. Paul Power scored the goal. And that, I think that was again Villa Park. And it just, it just, it just adds to the specialness of the, of, of the semi final, you know. Um, so as soon as, you know, and, and the, having the final is the destination, you know, that's the, that's the, that's the promised land to get to. But you're kind of, you're getting to the promised land a bit too early when you haven't necessarily earned the right to, to play there. So yes, neutral venues, I'm, I'm all in favour of neutral venues for semi-finals, but the FA's going to turn down, you know, however many paying punters going through the gates there, extra, they're not going to do it, are they? The FA's not knowingly turned down any money in, in recent years. I think that's <laughs> I, I think that's fair enough. Um, one of the things that I, I wanted to talk to you about, and, and maybe the answer is not at all, and I realise you know, it would have it, it seriously expanded the scope of the book. Were you tempted at all to do a full sporting history of Wembley, uh, as opposed to a football history? For purely unromantic reasons, Reasons, purely commercial reasons. It's a case of where the book then appears in the bookshelves of Waterstones. Yeah. If you've got a pan sport book, I did one before the TV sport one that I did, and it's like, well, they've got athletics, badminton. I'm going to try and go through the alphabet here. Cricket, darts, so you can do the whole lot. Equestrian, fencing, golf, etc. Um, it's where do they put that? They can't put that under one thing. So it goes in that top left corner. Yeah. That only tall people can reach, and no one looks for books up there, and. and and so, you know, such are the commercial pressures in, in book publishing, you know, you have to make it nice and easy so there's an obvious place for it to put it. So stuck to football, as I'd written three football books before. Um, but I did try to allude to, you know, Speedway, Rugby Union, Rugby League, 1948 Olympics, you know, and it, Beyond Sport, you know, Evil Knievel, <laughs> Live Aid. You know, it's this is when it becomes a national thing. It's, 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 it goes beyond sport as well. You know, it's it, it's a it's a building that kind of does more for national identity, I think, than even someone like Buckingham Palace or somewhere like that. You know, it just feels to me it's, that's kind of, it's some kind of glue, sporting and cultural glue. Then, and I think I think the new place does have that to an extent. Not quite, probably got the magic of the previous one, but also has better sight lines right across the. For, for in terms of a viewing pleasure, uh, it, it's it's much nicer for. For, for fans it's got it's got accessible toilets i mean that's an improvement <laughs> for, for 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 a start yeah i, I think that there is there is something there in that like you say that that national glue and that that focus i tried to have a look um when the first concert was held at wembley and going back to sort of Pathé news it was a charity gig I and mean, obviously everyone remembers live aid or has heard of heard of live aid but there was one in 69 which was done by oxfam and there was a, and there's a lovely Pathé news clip of of youngsters from the capital all walking to wembley as a fundraiser for famine relief and then they got treated to a pops concert at the end of it and that was oh, i think pops. i think it was called pops you know like when you yeah, get like yeah. the liverpool pops and things like that so um yeah yeah, yeah so you, you that's in 69 and then you get the who it's either the Who or the Stones in 70, 78 or 79 are the first band to put on a, a, a series of, of summer concerts. Uh, and that's the sort of birth of Wembley as stadium rock. Then you get Springsteen, then you get Live Aid, then you get Queen. And it all just kind of kind of goes from there as the sort of the venue to be. But that kind of that metamorphosis from just purely being football or sporting touch point to that wider cultural 
touch point is interesting and it you know it's it's sort of the people's cathedral isn't it you know that's the best mm. stadiums it's where it's where we come to congregate it's where we come to celebrate it's where we come to commiserate with each other sometimes yeah yeah the, 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 we, we are, are pilgrimages you know these are pilgrimages to to you know it's not lords but it's oh, lords lords and lords um but it's 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 you know the religious imagery you know you can say you know this is the congregation and you know these are the the people we're worshiping you know you can follow that whole kind of metaphor right across but i think it is people are gathering there you know in a way that they don't gather in churches anymore you know sports or pop concerts or whatever are the are kind of that that cultural glue and and it is a cathedral it's a it's a rebuilt cathedral but it still serves the same purpose and it still has Wembley as a concept hasn't hasn't disappeared with this new stadium because it's got an identity of its own. It's just not the identity we grew up with kids, so it's never going to feel quite the same. At the time, I was growing up in the Midlands and you know, just in Birmingham, and I was a passionate sort of chip on my shoulder, sort of, Birmingham's just as good as London. It's It's not. No, no, I'm right. It's just not. <laughs> I'm allowed to say that as well. But like, why can't the, the national stadium should be in the centre of the country so everyone can get to it? But now I'd have felt like that would have been a huge mistake. Mm. Yeah, it would have been accessible if you stuck it next to the NEC and blah, 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 blah. But you'd be trading the heritage for a slightly shorter journey or a better train connection. Yeah, people would call it a brand. But why would you throw out this well? It's like, you know, renaming a popular chocolate bar whatever giving it a new name and it was like well why would you do that oh and changing the recipe at the same time it's like why would you do that hold on to one one of those things at all and if Wembley is a name known right across the world which it is try and just make people out this is just Wembley Mark II but it is still Wembley it's still Wembley as the concept Wembley as the cathedral as the the place you do you you make that pilgrimage to definitely that was a lovely chat but I do want to suggest to people that they look at Field of Dreams. It's not in the top left uh, shelf of Waterstones. And by the way, Nigel, I can tell that you're a romantic because you're thinking of book sales as in physical bookshops rather than in sort of some Jeff Bezos online casino. So, you know, that's the romantic in you. Uh, but it's Field of Dreams, 100 years of Wembley and 100 matches, and it's available now. Lovely. Cheers, James. Thank you very much, mate. Thank you. That's great. Enjoyed that. The wonderful Nigel Tassel there. Lovely man. Wembley is so important from a a sporting context that goes beyond football. There was greyhound racing. In fact, there was one game at the 1966 World Cup Finals, which was supposed to be played at Wembley, uh, Uruguay against France, uh, that was switched to the White City Stadium because Wembley's owner at the time refused to reschedule a, a greyhound meeting. You had famous boxing matches there the one that comes to mind is Henry Cooper versus Muhammad Ali that was huge in Wembley's history and of course Wembley's got a big part to play in rugby more so in league in terms of the Challenge Cup finals of Great Britain test matches and I remember Martin O'Fire there and Jonathan Davis playing there and all, all, all those great league players of the sort of late 80s early 90s but it also played a little role in rugby union it was the home of the Welsh rugby team between Cardiff Army Park being knocked down and the Millennium Stadium uh, coming online and in fact it was uh, Wembley where Scott Gibbs scores the famous try in 1999 to beat England and deny them the the Five Nations in giving Scotland the last Five Nations Championship. So Wembley has this this role in boxing, in football, in rugby, such an important stadium and it was such a nice opportunity to have that conversation with Nigel. But speaking of rugby union and I might try and get like a crowbar sound effect here because I am really crowbarring this in. 
but I'm delighted to announce that my latest book, World in Union, A History of the Rugby World Cup in 15 Matches, is uh, now available for pre-order in all the normal places. So if you like uh, rugby or, well, yeah, mainly if you like rugby, but if you general interest in sport, World in Union is now available to pre-order. It's one of the things I'm most proud of in my my entire life. A couple of years of research has gone into this, spoke to so many legends of the game uh, to get their sort of inside perspective on some of the great games in Rugby World Cup history and just a privilege to speak to the likes of David Campese and Rory Underwood and, and Sean Fitzpatrick and, and Sean especially. You, you can't tell the story of the Rugby World Cup without covering off Sean Fitzpatrick. He's a Rugby World Cup winner, all-black legend, 92 caps for New Zealand, and he has kindly agreed to, well, he has, not just agreed, he has kindly provided the foreword for my book. So even if I don't sell a single copy of World in Union, the fact that my name is next to Sean Fitzpatrick's name on something gives me incredible joy. Um, And so I thank Sean for that. Uh, And I hope you enjoy his foreword. I hope you enjoy the book. We've got a few more uh, episodes in this series of Ground Jewels to come. Uh, The next episode is a fantastic episode. It's already recorded. It's with the Scottish uh, runner, Ailey Doyle. And she's talking about her absolute passion for Tyne Castle, the home of Heart of Midlovian. And it's a lovely chat. And she brings that athlete's perspective in terms of what it's like to compete in a stadium. Uh, She's a fantastic guest, incredibly engaging And I can't wait for you all to hear about her grand jewel. Until next time.